Welcome to Pillar of Hope. This is the story of an unwavering commitment by Dr. Michelle Schulzberg and her team of clinical researchers from around the world. For medical centers in Brazil, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Ireland, Argentina, the U.S., and Canada, a small team of doctors and scientists worked tirelessly in an effort to reduce the death rate by addressing the risk of blood clotting in patients sick with COVID-19. March 2020. Dr. Michelle Schulzberg, clinical hematologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, along with Dr. Peter Uni, director of the Applied Health Research Center at St. Michael's, are deep in the midst of a massive healthcare crisis. The world is learning of the devastating effects of a pandemic known as COVID-19. Michelle is gathering a team of clinical research specialists to help find answers to a dramatic and unusual occurrence in COVID-19 patients, deaths due to abnormal blood clotting. A pattern began to emerge. The problem, however, was that research and development takes a painfully long time, time that Michelle didn't have. Typically, to go from the research and development phase to launching a treatment in the clinical space, it takes often more than a decade to make that leap, to change guidelines, to change the approach to standard care. So what is distinctive about COVID-19 is there was this immediate sense of urgency that we all had to kind of put the pedal to the metal and refine our research questions really quickly after we've identified the knowledge gap and design a clinical trial or observational studies, protocols, an assemble team, and then internationally collaborate, launch the trial in record time. So usually all that stuff happens over years, um, and we were doing that stuff over weeks. So typically in research, there's an obvious knowledge gap, then that leads to a clinical and research question, and then you write up a document that describes how you're going to address it, and how you're going to measure whether or not an intervention is effective or safe. And then you launch the study, you collect the data, you analyze the data, and then you find out if the results are positive or negative. And then you influence clinical care based on your findings, hopefully. So the hope is to be able to, whatever your findings are, whether they're positive or negative, that it influences clinical care. Otherwise, why are you doing it? But here, everything was a gap. We didn't know anything. All we knew is that people were sick and that this virus is really contagious. We didn't even know how contagious it was yet and how it was transmitted necessarily yet. And we didn't know specifically why people died. And so once we started to have some signal that abnormal blood clotting might be related to their risk of death, that was when there was a light bulb moment for me. And that actually fully happened on Twitter. Recognizing the circumstances surrounding patient deaths from COVID-19, Michelle's team, Dr. Uni from St. Michael's Hospital, Dr. Mary Cushman from University Medical Center in Burlington, Vermont, and Dr. Lisa Bauman-Krutziger from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, needed to move quickly and needed help. 
Drawing upon her network of colleagues, Michelle took to social media, hoping to find common ground and answers to so many unresolved issues. With social media platforms readily available, Dr. Mary Cushman, too, found answers on Twitter. I'm pretty active in social media in terms of utilizing social media as a platform to discuss science. I have for a few years now. For me, with COVID, social media was an amazingly wonderful way to get information. You know, when so much is being published and so much is coming out on this topic, for me, if I'm focusing on my Twitter account, honestly, um, because of the people that I follow, who are people I know and trust and, and who I think are influencers, if I can see what they're talking about on Twitter, I can know what is going on that's important. It's a filter because they're going to be tweeting about things that are important. And I do the same thing. So it's been a great way to get information. I remember the first weekend um, back in March when I was on call during COVID as we were shutting down, I got a call at 5.04 p.m. and um, I had to go into the hospital and admit a patient suspected of having COVID who was a hematology patient, a person with leukemia. And we had made the decision not to involve our trainees in the care of suspected COVID patients. So as a mainly researcher, <laughs> physician faculty, um, I had to actually go to the emergency room and see the patient and figure out literally how to write admission orders in the electronic record, because I had never done that before, because we have residents and fellows who do that kind of stuff normally. And I was honestly kind of afraid to approach a patient suspected of having COVID, because I'm not used to doing that. I had never put on all that PPE before, ever. And so I had been watching Twitter, and actually there was some good information on Twitter about how to put on and take off PPE <laughs> and about how to keep yourself and your family healthy. Because, you know, when you come home from the hospital after being with a patient with COVID, you have to like leave your clothes outside the house, <laughs> right? And have two outfits to wear, leave your shoes outside the door. There's these things. And I had learned a lot about a lot of this on Twitter. And so right before I left for the hospital, I went to my Twitter, kind of checked out this post that I had remembered seeing that gave some really great tips about this. And so I felt more confident. So, so Twitter has been really helpful to the dissemination of, of knowledge, I would say. Back in Toronto at St. Michael's Hospital, enthusiasm was growing and Michelle reached out to doctors in other countries. Once I knew that I had Peter's backing, that also opened up a plethora of resources. And I actually then said to myself, oh my God, we can really do this. <laughs> um, this actually can happen. And so I became more confident. And so then I started drafting grant submissions and the uh, protocol with a wonderful PhD candidate named Grace Tang, who works with me. And she's worked with me since she was an undergraduate student. And she's amazing and brilliant in her own right. And so we just started writing, 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 writing like crazy. And Peter and I were working together and crafting this new protocol and um, submitted it for funding. And then by word of mouth, people started to become aware of our protocol and of our goal, and then started to connect with other individuals in Canada, outside of Canada, to develop our trial steering committee, which is typically a group composed of 
really innovative, well-respected researchers in the field who have expertise either in the content, so in this case, blood clotting issues, or in the methodology, so uh, in this case, clinical trials and biostatistics. And so we developed this incredible team of people who all said, yes, I believe in this trial, and I believe that um, the principal investigators can make this happen. And so that's how people became involved. And people also probably felt a sense of relief and maybe some security and maybe a bit of joy too and feeling like they could be part of a solution like that's what we all needed and wanted and still want answering the call were doctors onera nigri hassan rahal and carlos pompilo from sao paulo brazil the bond between the canadian and the brazilian team was immediate and electric fighting each other in zoom in the middle of this pandemic was like striking gold Elnera describes her first encounter with the deadly virus. For me, the first day, I remember very, very clearly. I was seeing the the picture from other countries on TV, and then in Italy, all that dramatic situation where 60% of people in the ICU were dying. I started to imagine that something was, was getting wrong. I saw the first patient, March 25th. And we are in this fight with this rapid trial and all over the world. By that time, Dr. Middledorf heard about this research and Dr. Michelle Schultberg and we all got together to unite our efforts to go fast and try to answer these questions. When and how to anticoagulate these patients and how to treat them. Doctors were being spread thin. COVID-19 was overtaking the medical systems worldwide. An overwhelming number of patients were taxing the system, creating chaos in hospital hallways. All these patients in the hallway have all been seen, even though we're overflowing or trying our best to still provide them care, which we're doing. Specialists who would normally be attending to areas of their own expertise were called upon to assist with COVID-19 patients. Working alongside Dr. Onera Nigre is Dr. Hassan Rahal, who shares the frustrations of Brazil's medical challenges. Many patients were arriving very seriously ill, and there is an ICU in our emergency department and with 17 beds. And some of the days, it was devastating to be on call because we had all 17 patients with mechanical ventilation, and more and more patients were arriving in our emergency room. By that time, we were scared about maybe don't having enough machines to support these patients. It didn't happen, but it was something that we kept thinking about. I remember even trying to learn how to make an improvised CPAP. It wasn't necessary after all, but it was quite hard. Another problem that actually we are still facing it is the organization of medical residency programs because many residents were assigned to care uh, for patients with COVID and their training was compromised. There were uh, residents from ophthalmology, as an example, and they were helping us in the emergency department, uh, in the nurses. Right now we are trying to catch this lost time, their specialization. That's yet a problem we have to solve because they helped 
a lot of patients, they have a lot of, of us in the emergency department, but they also need to get their training as it was their initial willing. And, and other patients are expecting them to, to, to be good doctors in their fields. In the morning, I do the rounds and see the patients that are in the ICU or, or, not, or in the emergency department. And mainly, we are seeing patients with COVID, about 90% of our patients. And then uh, in the afternoon, I continue seeing patients. So I am working from 8 to 11 uh, every day. And in Sundays and Saturdays, a little bit less. But there are no weekends and, and no holidays since the, the beginning of the pandemic. I do many classes to other physicians on everything we are learning about the disease, about this coagulopathy and all these uh, implications in the treatment. So maybe all day long I'm busy. The struggle for healthcare workers growing as hospitals are pushed to the brink. Healthcare workers at the center have tested positive for the virus. The team continued to grow. The spirit and commitment demonstrated by medical professionals from around the world was overwhelming. Everyone jumped in to help. No questions asked, and minimal funding was exchanged. It was about science and the pursuit of salvation. Obtaining peer-reviewed funding at the best of times is difficult. The success rate is insanely low, typically around five to 10 percent of you know, studies that are submitted get funded. Really hard, really competitive, lots of people doing lots of great work. But then add a pandemic. And certainly we are not the only people that are going to be inspired by the pandemic and want to help. So this meant that the competition became even steeper, which is great because it means that lots of people want to do good work. But it's rough because an even smaller proportion of the submitted grants are going to be funded, which means that a lot of good work won't necessarily see the light of day. Traditional sources for research come from institutes like the CIHR or the NIH, which are large national research institutes. In the early spring, we submitted to a large COVID-related CIHR grant competition and they had 339 submissions for the call, which is insane. <laughs> which is completely insane, because that tells you that there are 339, more than that, principal investigators working day and night to put together protocols and proposals to submit for funding in record time. So this just gives you a sense of what's happening on our national level, and that's just in Canada. And so they ultimately funded the top 30 projects that they ranked according to a variety of criteria. And our trial was ranked 31st. That was a really rough blow for us. The feedback that we received on our grant at the time was amazing feedback and almost all of it was positive. So that was even more confusing to receive positive feedback, but not to get funded. Along with the lack of financial resources, the study was hit with additional setbacks. 
As the international medical community joined the team, each country encountered their own uphill battles. Brazil's Dr. Negri faced skepticism about the study. In the beginning, nobody believed, and I was interpreted as a person that wants to show off, and that I was prosecuted by the local council of, of physicians here in Brazil. And then Dr. Michelle Schoenberg, she called me, and, and then she posted our research in science, and then people started to believe. So it was a very tough time for me and for my colleagues that believed in the same thing, including Michelle. She she also had a bad time in the beginning. But now things are getting better. Every Everybody's starting to agree that it's a thrombotic disease. Undaunted by the struggles with the trial, now known as the Rapid COVID COAG study, the group pressed on. Social media was buzzing with this Canadian research study, and the medical community was getting more deeply involved in the race to beat COVID-19. Next on board was Dr. Paula James, Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Later in February, it became clear that our lives were gonna change fairly significantly, professionally and personally because of the pandemic. And then we started to see reports coming out of China of the blood clots that patients were suffering there. And because of my interest in coagulation and in blood, I really started paying attention through March as everything started to change in terms of what our daily lives looked like. The thing we're concerned about is the transmission from person to person to person. That's called sustained transmission. Springtime saw COVID-19 transmissions escalate. By mid-April, 167 countries were impacted. The world was in lockdown. Heads of state were grappling with the next steps. Economies began to crumble. Healthcare workers were in an unrelenting whirlwind of confusion and panic. The curve was steepening. But through this, Michelle continued to enlist the help of colleagues throughout Canada and the world. In Vancouver, British Columbia, Dr. Agnes Lee, Medical Director of the Thrombosis Program and Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia joined the team. Dr. Schulzberg, who is the PI for the RAPID trial, approached me uh, to develop the protocol for the clinical trial because of my experience in running clinical trials. And also, we have mutual friends who in the uh, thrombosis world and, and hematology really is a, it's a small community in Canada. Support began to grow at an increased pace. This is how a lot of research starts. It starts with an idea, with a scientific question that's important for us to, to answer, to help patients, uh, to provide better care. And then somebody sits down, puts pen to paper, and writes a protocol. Um, basically, is the recipe of how to run a study um, to answer that question. And then we try to find collaborators who have obviously similar interests, experience, um, and then we sit down together to fine-tune the protocol, and then we try to raise funds to get the study to work. So normally, uh, raising funds is, is very difficult, and, and it still is difficult, and 
if not during COVID times, it's, you know, there's a lot of competition for research dollars that we have in Canada. So often we, we start locally at the, the main centre where the principal investigator is, so Dr. Schoesberg, who's at uh, St. Michael's Hospital. So she was able to raise funds through a St. Michael's Foundation, and so they funded her to basically start the research at the hospital. And then as slowly momentum built and we've got more investigators, um, different hospitals like Ottawa, for example, also participated. So they put in some money. And uh, I also understand, for example, the Canadian military has been extraordinarily helpful and contributed funding to help the study grow. As momentum increased, there was a sense of optimism building. But still, the stark realities of life in this new uncertain world where COVID-19 has dominated begin to take its toll. Hope springs eternal, but emotions start to run raw. We definitely can still get there. Um, there is just so, so much goodwill. Again, just seeing my colleagues working long hours and, you know, the marks on their faces from their um, masks. And um, some of my ICU colleagues, I mean, you know, they're staying in hotels. They can't go home because they're worried about their families. But they're doing it. And I have to say, you know, and I say this to my daughters, um, that, you know what, if we think back, like, you know, recently, just Remembrance Day, you know, the, the Canadian military, all, you know, all the soldiers that went to war, I mean, what we're doing now is nothing compared to that. Next, the Rapid COVID COAG study team find unforeseen challenges in day-to-day -day dealings with patients sick with COVID-19. People were dying at alarming rates as more and more countries succumb to this deadly virus. The world needed a solution. The resolve, grit, and tenacity of Dr. Schulzberg finds her reaching further afield to Ireland and the Middle East. Answers will be found, and with momentum on her side, Michelle's tireless efforts will serve to find victories. This research was made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partner institutions, organizations, and grant providers, which we proudly highlight in the show notes of this podcast. Learn more about this life-saving research and how you can contribute to this ongoing trial at stmichaelsfoundation.com slash COVID Rapid Hope.